to focus not so much on where he's ultimately taking us, which is what we've been doing in this series, looking at the big picture, but we're going to talk about where we are right now and, and what he wants to do with you and me at this moment in our lives, okay? And so understanding and accepting the fact that God not only loves you, which I think most believers probably already accept, at least intellectually, but really getting the fact that he genuinely likes you. You know, that's important because that knowledge can help us to recognize God at work in our lives, not just in really big ways, but also in the daily rhythms of life, okay? He's ever-present, working in the midst of our routines and, and our everyday encounters, and He's mindful of not just your eternal destination, but of your every move, your every thought, and He cares intensely about the small parts of your life. Matthew 10 29 through 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Now, sparrows were customly, customarily considered to be the smallest creatures, the, like the least in creation. They were almost insignificant. And a penny was the least valuable of all the Roman coins. But Jesus continues with, And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Meaning, not even the most insignificant occurrence in this life is overlooked or independent of the sovereignty of God. Even when a sparrow, this, this tiny, seemingly insignificant creature, falls to the ground, somewhere out in the wild, away from humanity, and, and all the important events of life, even that, what we would deem meaningless event, doesn't happen other than by God's own sovereign hand. We simply cannot support, at least not by scripture, the idea that God is somehow detached from the everyday dealings of humanity. But some people do believe that. That's called deism, by the way, and it's heretical, it's false. For Jesus goes on to say in verse 30, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That's awesome. Lord. God is as interested and involved in every single aspect of our lives as we are. In fact, more. We don't think about the sparrow that falls from the sky, but he does. To the degree that it, it doesn't even happen apart from him. God loves you. He cares about your cares. God isn't indifferent to our plight, to our needs, our desires, even these little things. He cares intensely about our cares. He's concerned about our concerns. He, he weeps with us. He rejoices with us, okay? I have dreams. I have desires for my family and for my life and for this church. And I know that he cares about all of that, you know? I'm prompted to talk about this today because of several conversations I've had recently with others just in the past several weeks. And I've come to realize that when we're reflecting on our experience or giving an appraisal of our own, our own stories, we often tend to write off entire chapters of our lives because we've blown it. You know, we've, we've messed up and it, it's as if we don't think those losses are recoverable. Like it's just too late. That part of my life is gone. I mucked it up and the best I can hope for is to do better. And, and hopefully my future will be better than my past. And, and I'm not talking about, by the way, not having regrets. Okay, I sometimes hear people say, no regrets. I've, I've lived my life the best way that I know how and I have no regrets. Let me tell you something. I have plenty of regrets. I wish I didn't, but I do. 
because I've, I've screwed up a lot. The only thing worse, in my opinion, than having to have regrets in life is not regretting the things that we should. It's not only a bit cavalier, I think, to say no regrets, but in fact, we may be glossing over bad decisions, wrong choices, past sin in our lives that we should be regretful for. And that matters because regrets, although painful, can be used in a healthy way to remind us not to repeat our mistakes. Right? Otherwise, we may never learn or mature as we should. So we're not talking about regrets here, okay? What we are talking about is the attitude that says... I've made a mess of things. It's too late to do anything about it, so I just hope that I can just piece together a, a better life from here on out. And the wreckage and hurt and devastation from yesterday is just a loss that I cannot do anything about. No. No, see? That's errant thinking. Because God not only works on our behalf for our eternal future, He's working on your behalf in every area of your daily life, all the time. Big and small. Okay? So not only is he able to provide for you a better tomorrow, he can and does restore what was lost yesterday back to your life today. Yes. Did you get that? He's not only able to provide for you a better tomorrow, he can and he does restore what was lost yesterday back to your life today, like, like right now. You see, God does great restorative work in his people's lives every day. He, he really likes you. And his plan for you is not just about your destination, it's about you. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All right? And so we can thank him not only for eternal salvation, but for restoration in our lives right now. And that's what we're going to look at together this morning. Next week, we're going to pause the series again to celebrate Father's Day. So please, bring your dads with you, if you can, to attend the service. We're going to honor them in a special service, just as we did on Mother's Day. All right, now then, let's look at God's restorative work in the daily lives of His people. Let's go to the book of Ruth, if you have your Bibles, and we'll have it up on the screen, I'm sure. Ruth is this little short story, but it's a powerful one. Like so many of the Old Testament stories, the story of Ruth prefigures the work of Christ. And when we talk about Ruth, and I've taught on Ruth in the past, we tend to focus on the Lord's work as the kinsman redeemer, which is the focal point of the story. And so we're right in doing that. But there are observations to be made along the way that speak to the nature of God's involvement in our daily lives as well as His ultimate redeeming work. Okay, So chapter 1 starting on verse 1 in Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. To be a sojourner meant you were a resident alien. You were landless, in other words. You would reside in a land that wasn't your own. And people often did that then, just as they do today, in order to provide a better life for themselves and for their families. So here we have this family sojourning into a foreign land because their home in Judah was experiencing famine. All right, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Maclon and Kilion died so that the woman, the woman was left with her two sons and her husband. Okay, Moab was a country across the Dead Sea from Judah and traditionally it was one of Israel's enemies. Right? And although marrying Moabites was discouraged, there was no formal prohibition against it. So Maclon married Ruth and Kilion married Orpah. There's also a progression, interestingly enough, in the terminology of these verses that suggests that they settled into Moab and it really became home for them. Verse 1 says they went to sojourn in Moab. Verse 2 says they remained there. And then verse 4 says they lived there. In fact, uh, they lived there about 10 years. So this was their transplanted home. And of course, it had always been home for Ruth and Orpah, as far as we know. All right, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Okay? So the husbands are all dead. And these three women are on their own. In that culture... A childless widow was in an extremely precarious position. She would have no means of long-term provision, and Naomi knew that. She was in big trouble. But, but she heard that there was food in Judah, and there was a community there of her own people, and that was exactly what she needed. So she packs up and starts heading back to Judah, but out of her concern and love for her daughters-in-law, she tries to bid them farewell and send them back to their families' homes where they will have some chance of survival, some chance of a future, because again, there wasn't much chance of a future for a childless widow in that day. So just for a second, take a quick inventory of what they've lost. They've lost their husbands. They're dead. They've lost their provision that disappeared with their husbands. They've lost their hope. Right? Naomi says in 12 and 13, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? So Naomi is certainly losing hope and, and all but lost is their future and their dreams. As far as they can tell, there is no real future there now for them. Okay, so what does Naomi do? She correctly recognizes God's sovereignty in verse 13, but she wrongly assumes that he's against her, and that's why all this is happening, and she brings that up again and again. But who could blame her, right? At this point in her life, everything's falling apart. But rather than seek God in that moment or petition God for direction or provision or hope or, or future, Naomi hatches this plan for survival mode. Ruth's father's still alive. We'll learn that later in chapter 2. So Naomi is hoping that these young women can go back home and make a life for themselves. And Naomi is going to head back to her people and see if she can survive. 
forget about gaining back anything that she's lost, right? She's just trying to make it another day and hope for a better tomorrow. And I think that maybe we do this sometimes in our own lives. We tend to assess the damage after a relationship goes south or we lose our job or business or we get off track, we lose sight of the dreams that God has given us. And sometimes I think we write off our losses and we go into survival mode. Like Naomi, we begin to question our future instead of saying, wait a minute, God, what are you doing here? And, and how do I need to pray? I think too often we say, well, you know, that was a bust. That didn't work. It didn't work out. So, so I'm going to leave the ministry. I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to leave this relationship. And we give up on our dreams and we settle for less than what God intended for us. It's true, God moves us from place to place at times in our lives. It's not that our circumstances will forever remain unchanged, right? These women's husbands died. There was no going back to those relationships. But the result of the loss doesn't mean that God can't or won't restore what was lost in relationships and in provision and in our hope and in our future. Okay, listen. Don't allow loss in your life to rob you of your hope. Yeah? Don't, don't allow loss in your life to rob you of your hope. You can lose everything that is material in this world. You can lose your closest relationships. You can lose your source of income, but don't ever lose your hope. Why? Because hope is built on something bigger than this world. Something transcendent. Something above the material trappings of this life and the imperfect relationships that surround us. Our hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus Christ. And you can take this to the bank. He loves you. And His plan for you is not for you to merely get by in this world, hanging on for dear life until you breathe your last and finally make it to heaven. No. Now, his plan is to use you to change the world. And when he starts putting us together with like-minded believers, man, you better watch out. Because there's nothing we cannot accomplish together through Christ. Surely you've read Jeremiah 29, 11. We read it all the time. In 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar takes what's left of the Israelites, not much, into captivity into Babylon. You talk about loss. The people of God have lost everything at this point. Most of them have been wiped out. They've lost their homes. They've lost their loved ones. They've lost their country. Their hope seems to be gone. No future of any promise appears before them. Dreams are shattered. Life is not good for the chosen people of God. They're living with this profound loss at this point. And what does God tell them through the prophet? Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you, to give you what? A future and a hope. So God is promising them to restore their future, to restore their hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. So now he's promising to restore their material possessions. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. Here he's promising to gather them back together. That is restoring their relationships. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
Okay, finally, he's promising here to restore their dreams. God's promise for his people, and in case you don't realize it yet, that's us. We're his people. His plans for his people is to restore what's been lost. Relationships, provision, hope, future, dreams. Okay? And we quote Jeremiah 29.11 all the time. We know that part. Here's the part that I don't think we talk about very often. Back up in Jeremiah to verse 4. This is before all the promises for restoration. This is before he brings his people back to their country and restores their fortunes. This is before all of that. All of what we just read. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, don't stop living your life because you've experienced great loss. Keep going. This is before the promise. Don't stop. Don't give up. Thrive in spite of your loss and forge ahead. Life doesn't stop just because it isn't going according to our plan. It isn't about our plan anyway. It's about his plan. So don't just survive. Thrive, even in the midst of loss. Okay? Now here's where it gets really interesting. This sort of boggles my mind a bit. Verse 7. And remember, this all comes before his people experience the restoration. Okay? It's key here. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. He doesn't say, seek welfare in the city. He says, seek the welfare of the city. That's a big difference. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, so in its welfare, the city's welfare, the city where we've been exiled, the city that belongs to our enemies, the, the city where we're being oppressed, the city where we were never meant to be. The city where my dreams ended. The city that, that killed my hope. That city, the city that destroyed my future. Are you kidding me? You want me to seek the welfare of this place where I'm stuck. Are you kidding me? That's exactly what he's telling you. And it isn't until after all of that that the restoration comes. Look... We don't talk about this part much, but we'd better. You see, the prosperity gospel says, hey, name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. Right? It's just out there for the taking. We're Christians. God's going to bless us. We should never be uncomfortable. There's no suffering. There's no discomfort in our life. I'm sorry. That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that when you're living in a place of loss, exiled in a situation, a bad job, a sorry circumstance, a relationship that is wrecked, a place of real need, and it seems like you're a million miles away from where you should be, where you know you're called to be, instead of cursing the ground that you're standing on, instead of rebelling against your pinhead boss, leaving your church angry, giving up on your dreams, and accepting defeat, why don't you pray for your spouse? Why don't you pray for your boss, for the, for the company where you work, for your neighbors, for your neighborhood? Why don't you pray for your church? Pray that God will prosper them. Pray that God will turn their hearts and yours to Him. 
praying blessing and goodness over every situation and every relationship and every sorry circumstance and see if God doesn't begin to bring restoration into your life. You see, restoration comes after we learn to seek Him and bless others in the midst of our loss. It's easy to praise Him and bless others after we've experienced restoration, after the promotion, after our business thrives, after our marriage is restored. But He says, seek the welfare of those around you in the midst of your loss. And then when you seek Me, you will find Me. Okay? Why? Why? Why do we find him after we pray for others and seek blessing for them? Why not before? Because when we begin to pray for those that we struggle with and bless those places of exile in our lives in the midst of our loss, our hearts become sensitive to the voice of the Lord and our own humility. Okay? It humbles us. And that's exactly where he wants us to be. That isn't always easy. And... and it generally requires a serious amount of resolve because it also doesn't happen quickly, usually. I don't know if we always realize the amount of time that passes between some of these events in Scripture, these stories in the Bible. When you look at them on the page, you know, they're right there in black and white. And we read one event and then another event. We read about the struggle and then we read about the blessing, almost as if it happens immediately one after the other. But it doesn't always happen that way. After the Lord spoke through Jeremiah about blessing and restoring his people, what we just read, it was 70 more years before it actually came to pass. Okay? We see that in Scripture time after time. The, the place of exile that we're in, sometimes it lasts a while. The stories are so condensed on the pages, but sometimes the people in these stories experience pure hell before the restoration finally came. And here's the thing. I know that some of you know what that's like. I know some of your stories, but I'm trying to tell you that if you'll just stay the course, keep the faith, dig in your heels, and resolve yourself to trod the path that Christ is leading you down, you will be restored. One way or the other. Ruth never lost her head and never lost her resolve. And through her hurt, through her struggle, and, and through her loss, Right? And so where we should set our minds in our times of loss, this is where we should be, our places of exile. Set your mind in a place of resolve to cling to the truth, to cling to God and His Word with a determination that says, no matter what occurs, I will follow you, Jesus, until my last breath. I will not give up on the dream, and I will not give in to defeat. And I will pray blessings over those people in this place of exile. That is just exactly what Ruth decided to do that day. After Naomi pleads with her daughters-in-law to go back home and make a new life for themselves. You see, Ruth was living in this serious state of exile. And her husband was gone. Her provision was gone. Her hopes were fading. Her future was crumbling. And her dreams were spent. Right? She could have easily thought to herself, this is no good. In fact, she could have easily viewed Naomi as a ball and chain that was going to drag her down for good if she stayed with her. Naomi wasn't a young woman. She's an older, childless widow. Not the kind of person you want to hang out with when you're in a bad situation in this culture. right? There wasn't much prospect of any kind of decent future for Naomi at all at this point. Ruth could have easily said, you know what, I love you, I'm out of here. I mean, she gave her an out. She told her, why don't you just go? This whole deal has gone bad. 
So, Naomi, you're the best. I'll see you. I'm going to cut my losses and I'm leaving. But instead, she didn't do that. Ruth, with a rock-solid resolve, began to honor and bless Naomi. Instead of running away and looking for a better life, she began to bless and try to prosper the welfare of the place that she was, the one she was with. In that place of exile, she began to seek the welfare of Naomi. Right? Right in her place of exile. Let's go back to our original text. Uh, Ruth 1. We'll start in verse 14 and read through verse 18. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah's out of here. She now has her own network on TV. No, that's Oprah. Sorry. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the attitude that steely resolve that we should all have in times of trouble. I love that Ruth was so determined to stay with Naomi and honor her no matter what came their way. You know, in the midst of her loss, instead of looking at Naomi as having brought all this upon them, which Naomi thought herself, Ruth blessed her and honored her. And what was the result? Well, first Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem together. And when they arrive, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, this would have been April or May, just a few weeks before the wheat harvest. And the custom in those days was that the poor people, the widows, the sojourners, the orphans, were permitted to go into the corners of the fields and the borders of the fields, and even sometimes behind the reapers. These are the people that were picking the harvest. And they were able to glean or pick up what was left over. Right? So the poor and the needy got the leftovers as a way to provide for those who had no other means. And they would go from field to field behind the, the reapers and they would pick up the leftovers for themselves and their families. It's actually kind of cool. So Ruth asked for permission to go behind the reapers and pick barley for her and Naomi. Again, she's not only looking out for herself. Right? She didn't ditch Naomi and, and go to the fields. She's blessing Naomi as well. So we pick up the story, chapter 2. Starting in verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Right? This is Naomi's family. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? You just hear it, can't you? <laughs> And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Okay, there's a pattern that Ruth is following here. Just as the Lord instructed his people in Jeremiah to work and plant and prosper in the midst of their loss... 
Ruth is out in the fields from morning until night, working very hard to bless her mother-in-law and meet their needs. She isn't complaining. She isn't bemoaning her losses. She's resolved and determined to move ahead and do what needs to be done. And in the midst of her labors, after she bless, she, she's blessing Naomi and honoring her and, and looking after her, God begins to restore back to Ruth what was lost. Boaz, who in chapter 2, verse 1, is referred to as a worthy man. Okay, he takes notice of Ruth. And Boaz isn't just any guy. The word worthy in chapter 2 is a Hebrew word, ha'il, which means character and wealth and position and strength. Interestingly enough, the same word, ha'il, is used to describe Ruth later in chapter 3, verse 11. It says a lot about the character of Ruth. So Ruth has just been taken notice of by a very significant person. And she's been given permission to glean in his field. So here we see provision, right, being restored back to, to Ruth. Let's go to verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Okay, so here he's restoring back to Ruth her protection, her sense of belonging. Verse 10, then she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? Right? Ruth's humility is evident here. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth knew where to go in times of trouble. In other words, God is going to restore you because you chose to do what was right. And then she said, verse 13, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So now God is restoring hope. You can hear it in her voice. Back to Ruth. Okay? I wish we had time to read this entire story. We, we don't. But as you read on, you find that Ruth continues to be blessed by Boaz. And the relationship begins to blossom. And finally in chapter 4, verse 13, we see Boaz. It says, Boaz took Ruth and became his wife. And he went into her. And she became his wife, sorry. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Okay, so God restores a husband, a mate, back to Ruth. And as we find out, David, and ultimately the Christ, come from her line. So he restores her future, her dreams back to her as well. Okay, and then verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. That's a huge statement. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Of course, the line of Christ. Everything that Ruth lost was restored by God. In his great love for her, a husband, a provision, a hope, 
a future, her dreams. She never gave up. She, she never relented. She just kept on blessing those around her and pursuing what was right. And in his love for Ruth, God restored all of her fortune. This is the same God that we serve. He loves you. And in his love for you, he will restore what has been taken, lost, ripped away, wrecked in your life. For your part, you have to keep on. Pray for those. Bless those around you in humility and in love. Serve those in your life, you know, even when you're in a time of exile. And as you bless and honor them, he will restore back to you what has been lost. He, I'm telling you, he gave me this word for you this week. He will restore back to you what has been lost. He will. He will. He will. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Psalm 34, 1 through 10. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Is there lack in your life? Is there want? Is there need? All right, what have you lost? What, what has been taken away? Will you guys come and play? Sammy, Jonathan. If we would seek the Lord, if we would but seek the Lord and His love, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So often what eludes us is seeking the Lord. We... We, we pray, I know that. But it doesn't always come immediately. Sometimes we have to wait 70 years for the blessing. I don't want to wait 70 years. I want it now. That's prosperity gospel. Truth gospel is you be diligent. You follow God. You dig in your heels. You don't give in. You don't relent. You don't give up. You don't walk away. You don't cop an attitude. You pray for those around you. You bless those in your place of exile. You seek welfare for the city in which you're in. And I'm telling you, He will restore you. Stay the course. Don't give up and don't give in. Let's pray.